Welcome back to the Moody Profcast. This podcast seeks to explore the intersection between theology and our culture by discussing various topics with the faculty of the Moody Bible Institute. Today, I would like to welcome our guest today, Dr. Sanjay Merchant. Dr. Merchant is professor of theology at the Moody Bible Institute, where he teaches classes like philosophy, apologetics, and Trinitarian theology. Dr. Merchant has a bachelor's degree from the University of Southern California, a master's in philosophy of religion and ethics, and a master's in theology from Talbot School of Theology, and a master's in Christian apologetics from Biola Graduate School of Arts and Sciences. That's right, three master's degrees, and a PhD in philosophy of religion and theology from Claremont Graduate University. Dr. Merchant's dissertation focuses on the discerning on discerning the boundary between Trinitarianism and Tritheism. Dr. Merchant, thank you for coming on the show. How are you feeling today? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Of course. Dr. Merchant here is someone I really respect in terms of his ability to intersect how philosophy intersects with theology. He has a strong passion for apologetics and how do we address the current trends and issues that are coming up in the apologetic sphere in the 21st century in the Western world. So, Dr. Merchant, tell us how you came to develop a passion for theology and apologetics. I became a believer in college, and it was a pretty radical conversion for me. At the time, I thought I was an atheist. And I say I thought I was an atheist because, you know, I don't know that I that I really was. Um, it's hard to um, check what you really deeply believe about some of these things. Um, in terms of my knowledge of spiritual things, uh, or at least, let's say, of religious things, um, it, was, it was pretty minimal. I was raised in a fairly secular home. Uh, for whatever reason, I found the gospel to be offensive. And uh, again, I, I, I don't really know why, but particularly offensive and worthy of um, debate and response. And um, I guess maybe I would be inclined to denounce it or something. Um, and again, who, who knows why uh, I developed those ideas, but I came uh, through um, – Weird set of circumstances to make it short. Uh, I, I came to believe that the gospel was true. I was reading the gospel of John and I was just overcome with the person of Jesus Christ. And um, I believe it was work of the Holy Spirit, of course. And I came to believe that Jesus was Lord. Well, having my head tell me a number of things that my heart no longer agreed with felt schizophrenic. And so I had this natural inclination to to find answers, I learned very quickly what apologetics was, that there were Christian philosophers, theologians, historians, scientists who addressed some of my philosophical, scientific, historical thoughts and assumptions with the Christian gospel from the perspective of the Christian faith, and that was helpful to me. It answered some of these things and um, um, and in some ways uh, clarified questions for me. I was sometimes asking the wrong questions. So I learned what apologetics was and I, and I realized it was a very powerful tool for helping bring my mind and my heart together and feeling less schizophrenic. That's part of what Christian discipleship is, bringing the head and the heart together because God gives us affections, loves that we don't find natively in us. We, he transforms us, uh, translates us rather from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light and transforms us uh, into new creatures. And so we find ourselves mysteriously with a love and desire for God and sometimes our heads are in different places. So that made me appreciate apologetics after I graduated from college. I wanted to do more. So I found a place where I could study for a degree in apologetics, which was one of the only degree programs, maybe at the time, the only degree program in the early 2000s 
that was doing that. There's a few more now. And when I was doing apologetics, I realized there's a lot of philosophy in this. I didn't, I didn't know that. I thought philosophy was just purely secular thing, but the Christian tradition has a long um, tradition of interacting with philosophy. Paul tells us in Colossians 2.8, beware of philosophy. So Christian theologians and, and preachers took that very seriously. They were aware of philosophy. Sometimes they said, these elements are helpful, these elements are bad and hurtful, and um, interacted with philosophy because that's kind of where our heads are and that sort of drives cultural views and attitudes. And so I decided to also study uh, philosophy and bring that together with theology and then do a PhD in that. So it was the Holy Spirit kind of guiding me step by step through those things. Hmm. So you found maybe that your experience in a secular campus as an atheist has kind of given you some precedent and passion and heart to be able to do apologetics and address the apologetic concerns in the 21st century. Can you describe how you came to reconcile uh, maybe some of the perceived tension between philosophy and theology? Right. There is a tension, uh, and we notice this intuitively. Um, different camps sort of square off on this issue, and one strong camp would say faith over reason, faith over reason. We must radically trust God, even when it seems unreasonable. Think about Abraham, God telling him to go and sacrifice his son. Well, he trusted God. He had faith, but what does reason tell you? If Abraham were to think for a moment, he might say, now, keep in mind, Abraham knows far less in terms of revelation about God than we know given the fullness of the gospel being revealed to us. But still, Abraham is a faithful man following God. If he had thought for a moment and said, wait, isn't God good? I mean, the pre-Abrahamic worshipers of God, Job and his friends, Noah, they knew of God's goodness. They weren't confused about that. So even for Abraham, it wouldn't make too much reasonable sense, but he was a faithful man. Well, the other extreme would say, no, no, reason over faith, reason over faith. We encounter the world and we can't encounter the world in an irrational way, in, a, uh, in, a, in an unhinged way. Um, illogic, being unreasonable, is the partner of being immoral. Those go hand in hand. Lack of reason and lack of right action go hand in hand. And so unreason leads to abuse and harm. And so above all things, we should be reasonable. And if faith is in concert with reason, then fine. But reason leads the way. And so these are these two strong camps. Well, most Christian thinkers want to navigate between those extremes. Not a, uh, a faith, a kind of heart that is thoughtless and immature and uneducated and not a sort of mind that is logical but without trust, is led by its own lights. Both extremes would be to divide the person because God has created us with both a mind uh, and a will, with both a brain and a heart. And so um, how to bring those those things together uh, is, the, is the difficult question. So actually most Christian theologians and thinkers, the, here's where the debate is. It's not, it's not faith over reason or reason over faith, but here's the question. We must have both faith and reason. Should we develop a faith that is reasonable or a reason that is faithful? 
And so you can sort of think about it both ways. But what I like about both options is that they integrate both. And I think both questions are really important. Yeah, definitely. I'm recalling different quotes from different theologians. I really like um, Anselm, how he says, you know, what we what the Christian faith is, faith-seeking understanding. C.S. Lewis saying, I believe in God just as I believe in the Son, not only because I see it, but by it I see all things as well. I, and as I take my apologetics class, I find myself looking into these different camps and perspectives. You know, you have the classical approach, which is much more rooted in the great philosophers of the Christian tradition. And then you have the evidentialist approach, and then you have the reformed or uh, reformed epistemology, reformed apologetics approach, and the fideist approach. I've heard that you would call yourself maybe falling into more of the evidentialist camp. Uh, why would you say that? Can, can you give us a little defense or maybe reason for why you believe evidentialism is probably the most effective apologetic method for today? Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll give a very short answer. And for people who are committed to other methods of apologetics, mm-hmm. presuppositionalism, the classical view, even a fideistic apologetic, I just want to say um, that I have great respect for those very astute theologians and apologists and ministers who are committed to those and think through them, and there's all sorts of questions. So I don't mean to just give a short answer and dismiss mm-hmm. uh, other views, um, but to just give a very brief answer, that the sort of general skeleton of my thinking about it. Um, the first question is, are there philosophical proofs for God? Is there good historical evidence for the Bible and specifically the resurrection of Jesus? I think this is where the rubber meets the road. The big question about God is very relevant still in our day, and the historical question of Jesus Christ is, is again, very relevant. Okay, so do we have a philosophical or philosophical arguments for God? Do we have a historical case for the resurrection? Yes or no? If you say no, but you are committed to the Christian faith, that is not to say that there is no God or that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. You just say that philosophy and history don't help us with those things. That's called fideism, as you mentioned. And there is a sort of practical fideistic apologetic that's more like a lived life than it is a set of arguments. If you say, yes, there are such arguments, well, then you could have any one of the other views that you mentioned, presuppositional, classical, or evidential. Um, I think that the answer is yes. There are sound arguments for God, philosophical proofs for God. Um, There is a sound or cogent historical case for the resurrection. So if anyone, you know, has read the Case for Christ, that very famous book, that is a piece of evidential historical apologetics for the resurrection of Jesus. If you've drawn some value from the book, if you found it persuasive, as many people did, um, then maybe you would agree with me. Yes, there is such a thing. But biblically speaking, Romans 1, Paul says that God's um, invisible nature is clearly seen in what has been made. Psalm 19 says that creation testifies of its creature, uh, creation, a uh, creator. First uh, Corinthians 15, Paul is giving evidences for the resurrection of Jesus. He says to the Corinthians, which is a port town, you can go to Jerusalem. There are 500 brethren in Jerusalem who can testify. They put their neck on the lines. They saw the risen Jesus. That's evidence. Um, it seems like biblically it's saying that there is such a thing. So now given that, now the question is, is it of any value? Is it of any evangelistic value? Does it do anything in evangelism? And there's two ways to go. The presuppositionalist will admit, yes, of course, philosophy proves God, but here's the problem. We're not in a good intellectual position to grasp 
the true deliverances of philosophy. Wouldn't it be great if we if we were? But just think about how confusing politics is. You have people of goodwill, intelligent people of very different political opinions. Why is that? Because things are difficult. Questions are difficult. We have biases that sometimes we don't even see. We have gaps and holes in our thinking. This is just hard. If we were perfect thinkers, maybe it would be different, but we're not. And so given that, especially the spiritual darkness that we find ourselves in, and the Bible's very serious about this, spiritually things are spiritual things are taught by the spirit, not by philosophy or any other means. Given that situation, although there are proofs for God and proofs for the resurrection, they aren't really of much value. So the presuppositionalist says doing those in apologetics is kind of spinning your wheels at best. And so what we should focus on is critiquing their worldview and showing them that their worldview, say you're an atheist, is defunct and collapsing and isn't uh, suitable. Uh, and so to sort of lead them to this point where they're in this sort of moment of crisis where their worldview has fallen away through critique and then we present to them the gospel. I'm not saying that that's a bad or wrong method. It's It has its place. But I, I, I don't think that just because philosophy and history – cannot prove the gospel to be true in themselves, that the Holy Spirit cannot use them in conversion and even in sanctification. So here's the analogy. Let's say you come out of a very uh, poor spiritual background, uh, a a church where um, maybe there's some spiritual abuse. Many people have experienced this. I have in the past. Uh, Really bad pastoring, and it was hurtful. And I went to a church that was very spiritually healthy. And the pastor's teaching ministry was healing to me. And I had never met a person like this who taught the gospel so clearly and um, kindly and without judgment and um, without his own sort of biases. At least that's how I thought. And it was helpful to me. And so what was happening is the Holy Spirit was sanctifying me, changing me, transforming me, and healing me through his teaching ministry. But the Holy Spirit was definitely using his teaching ministry. I didn't just go into a quiet room of believers every Sunday and sit there quietly and, and just have the Holy Spirit independently work on me. He healed me through his teaching ministry. And so sanctification came into my life through the pastor's teaching. So can't salvation come into our lives through these good arguments? So the difference between evidentialism and presuppositionalism, I think, is this. They both agree that there are proofs for God and the historicity of the resurrection is cogent. Presuppositionalist says... Yes, but since they won't lead us to salvation in themselves, they don't have that power. Only Holy Spirit has that power. They're of no value. Never mind them. The evidentialist says, of course, in themselves, they don't change us. They don't save us. The arguments don't do that work. Only the Holy Spirit does that work. But what does the Holy Spirit use? He uses good reasons to bring our heads and our hearts together Um, in some cases, not in every case. Salvation doesn't always happen through an apologetic argument. Um, Sometimes it can happen in, in, you know, less rational ways, but that's okay. But if sometimes it happens, I think that's the value of evidential apologetics. Mm-hmm. So when we do apologetics in the 21st century, uh, we have to also, like as you said, in terms of presuppositional apologetics, but really in any form of apologetics, we have to deal with people's presuppositions. What are some philosophical presuppositions that we here in the West, in the 21st century, have adopted, obviously in the general sphere, that you would say are philosophically unfounded? That's a good question. There's probably a number of them. I don't know if this is the best one, but it's probably one that a lot of people are aware of, and I think it has really bad consequences. One assumption is a philosophical assumption that's unfounded would be perhaps naturalism, or in some cases we might say scientism. 
Naturalism is this idea that nature itself or the universe itself is the highest being and there is no transcendent being. And so, of course, that would preclude theism which says that God is the highest being and then the universe exists contingently depending on God's creative will. If God wills that the universe exists, then it exists. If God doesn't, then it wouldn't exist. So the universe doesn't exist in and of itself by its own power or eternally or anything like that. Um, so it, they mutually deny each other, right? Which is the highest being, the universe itself or God? Well, I think probably even statistically, the vast majority of the people in the world would deny that naturalism is true. Many people would say, I think there's something more than just nature. Only the, the sort of hardcore philosophical scientific naturalist typically trained in a, a Western school of philosophy or science would be fully committed. They would identify as atheists and say that the universe is just there and that's all That's all. like Bertrand Russell, the famous uh, 20th century philosopher said, or Carl Sagan, uh, a popularizer of science in the late 20th century. He had a very famous TV show called The Cosmos. And I think the um, the tagline of that, he would say in the introduction, if, I rem if I'm remembering rightly, he would say, the cosmos is all there ever – is all there is, mm -hmm. ever was, and ever will be. That, those are expressions of naturalism. So only some people are strictly committed to it. But it still has an influence on the thinking of many, many people. And so they think that proofs for God is a silly endeavor. You can't do that. Even people would say, I think that there's something more. Say, so that's not possible. Well, that's a modern sort of scientific and philosophical bias that's happened for – I can mention a number of historical reasons why that's happened. But instead of you know getting into all of those reasons, which you know many people might be aware of some of them and I wouldn't have to really name them all, I think it's enough to just say why should we assume that nature and the ultimate science that studies nature, which would be physics – the ultimate science of nature, um, why would we think that nature is the highest being without a good reason to think so? We have every reason to think that it's not and that physics is the highest of all sciences. Physics ultimately, ultimately answers all questions um, when not all questions are even susceptible to answers from physics. Like, is it wrong to murder? Don't ask a physicist. But many people, they sort of have this naturalistic bias and they might say, well, ethics isn't really a science at all. It's just sort of preferences. And so we socially say it's bad to murder and we sort of socially agree, but it's not really objectively bad to murder. Nothing, Nothing's objectively bad because the only things that are objectively right or wrong are all determined by physics. So there's just preference. Well, I think that's crazy. I think that's nonsense. There's so many things that aren't – so that would be scientism, the idea that as sort of the friend of naturalism, every important question is – is ultimately answered by the hard physical sciences. Everything to be known is empirically known. It's known with the eyes. It's known with the, you know, the other sense organs. That's not true. That's not true at all. Um, not everything to be known is scientifically known. Some things are rationally known, like like moral facts, like basic mathematical facts. Some things are spiritually known. First Corinthians two, uh, by the teaching of the Holy Spirit. So, I think I think that naturalism and scientism I, I think are very pernicious sort of assumptions that people have. Mm, mm. Yeah, it's definitely notable to to say that people today might assume a lot of naturalistic or scient scientism, what do you call it, naturalistic presuppositions in terms of how they have their worldview, but functionally they are not pure naturalists. And 
this kind of re- reminds me of the concept of moral realism. I think the majority of philosophers believe that moral morals are, in a sense, like they're discovered, they're founded in something objective. But many are hesitant to apply that to a transcendent being. So would you say that today many people are – they're not – they claim they're naturalists and have naturalistic presuppositions oftentimes, but functionally they don't follow that through. Would you say that's correct? Yeah, I think the more and more popular level we get, the more and more inconsistent people are with their naturalism, Mm. Um, which is to be expected. Um, The more academic that we get, we will see committed naturalists. But as you said, there's something often a little bit inconsistent about their naturalism. Um, Strict naturalists of the early 20th century – you know, would would say that if it can't be, you know, logic we get for free. Logic we so they're logical positivists. Logic we get for free. We don't have to say where it came from or why it works. It just it's just there. Um, and then and then the empirical sense based world is there, and we can make sense of everything just given logic and nature. And if it and if if we can't make sense of it in terms of of just pure nature and logic, things like religious truths theological claims, even moral facts. We can't make sense of them. We just cut them out. We just cut them out. Well, you know, that didn't last very long um, and it doesn't go very far. And one of the main reasons is, as you were mentioning, when we start down this sort of fully naturalistic road where we are seeming to deny the reality of moral truths, people get very nervous and understandably so. Um, the full denial of moral truths is called moral nihilism and that is the anti-ethic of the psychopath who doesn't care about right or wrong, who doesn't even see the difference between right or wrong, just sees it as a preference. Oh, you don't like chocolate ice cream? I love it. Oh, you don't like murder? I love it. I mean they see they see moral questions like that. Um, well, you know, it, and any – Thinking, intelligent person should know that one plus two is three. By the same token, they should know that murder is wrong. We know those in very, very different ways. They should know that red is darker than white. Those are three things that we know in very, very different ways, but they're all absolutely objectively true. And so, sure, the naturalist wants to have an objective ethic, as you mentioned, but then how do you do that? We've got to ground it somehow in nature. Unfortunately, you know, nature in a Darwinian evolutionary view um, is just a series of accidents. And so here we are now, but nature could have gone quite differently, which would seem to imply that our morals could have been quite different, such that something like rape, which we say is objectively wrong, might have been morally permissible if history had gone differently, if the human species were just very, very different. But what are you more sure about? Are you more sure that Darwinian evolution is true or that rape is wrong? I think even most atheists would have to admit that they're more sure that rape is wrong. So if you're more sure that rape is wrong, you have good reason to think that history is not just a series of accidents and that morality isn't just grounded in nature, that it's objective and transcendent to nature uh, and so therefore must have an an objective and transcendent source. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it really reminds me of uh, one of my favorite apologetic arguments I've discovered is Alvin Plantinga's what was the evolutionary argument against naturalism where he talks about how if neo-Darwinian evolution and naturalism are assumed, then all our minds are not inclined towards truth. 
they're inclined towards survival, which ultimately is an inconsistent worldview because any sort of truth claim about evolution or naturalism or anything about morals is really just your mind pontificating towards survival, which we know functionally in our daily existence does not adhere to how we function as human beings today and how we function as a society as a whole. I also want to talk about some of the maybe the more apologetic challenges that we have in the 21st century. What do you say are some of the greatest apologetic challenges as a whole that we face right now? Oh, that's a good question. The biases that I mentioned before towards naturalism and scientism are, are a bit of a challenge. Um, I think a sort of sort of smirking doubt that we can even know answers to some of these very profound questions, um, you know, makes things very difficult. I, I find this a lot. People think we can't even ask those questions. They, you know, oftentimes people will say in a, even in a church context, um, if I'm doing some some teaching in a church and, and often I'll do a sort of classroom kind of teaching. Sometimes I'll do sermons, which is a little bit of a different genre, right? It's very much a monologue, but more of a classroom style teaching like what I do here at Moody. We get a little bit of dialogue and back and forth. And even then Christians will say, okay, uh, this might be a question I shouldn't ask, but – and then they ask a question that should be asked. <laughs> That's a very important question. And I often wonder, why do you think that that question shouldn't be asked? We live in a culture in which it's just sort of assumed that you don't ask those questions, that those questions can't be answered. Even in the church, that faith is, you know, sort of purely an, a movement of the will and purely a choice. And that is to say, faith over reason, that sort of radical perspective. And the point of Christian discipleship is to put your fingers in your ears and deny your philosophical, historical, and scientific perspectives and to sort of um, sort of let them let them die from atrophy or something like that. So th that's that's a that's a real challenge. And I, a lot of people love the fact that we can engage those things and ask hard questions and see um, how they connect to the gospel or how they challenge our misunderstandings of the gospel or our false expressions of Christianity, and that's challenging to us, but a lot of people find that really liberating. Some people find that daunting, and they and they think, oh, no, no, I, I like the safer version. Just give me the answer. And I, and I encounter that a lot too. And they'll say, Pastor, what's the answer? Just give me the answer. And um, I, I'm happy to, to do that. I mean, often we should just give answers if we have come from a somewhat of a studied position and we do have good answers to give. I'm not one of those people that say, I don't teach them what to think. I teach them how to think, you know. No, admittedly, we're always doing both, and we have to balance those things. So you don't you don't just teach a child how to think. At points, you tell them what to think, uh, and you got to be right about it. <laughs> That's the difficult thing. Uh, but but we do both, and so um, some people just say uh, they want to take the safer route. Just just tell me, just tell me what's the answer, and and I encourage them to sort of think through something and engage truths of the gospel, and that's. Um, I think that's what's great about being a disciple is having the opportunity to do that. It, it encourages us to stay in step with the Spirit, to think God's thoughts as encouraged and given to us and taught to us by the Spirit. Anyway, um, it's a challenge, but I think if, if we take on the challenge, it's really rewarding. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's often a struggle with the that's been portrayed in the modern deconstruction movement, right? Am I allowed to ask these questions? 
Am I dangerous if I ask these questions? Will I be ostracized from my church community if I start to ask these questions? So in the modern age of deconstruction that's been going around and that seems to be a hot-button topic, a hot-button word on spheres on the internet and social media, how, how would you say to someone that's wrestling through those things, how do you utilize philosophy and apologetics um, in the foundation, in their understandings of the foundation of the Christian faith? Yeah, that's wonderful. I honestly don't entirely know what people always mean when they say they're deconstructing their faith. Right. That can vary, I think, from person to person. Uh, I'm not aware of whether there is kind of one operative definition or even one great deconstructionist theologian or thinker right now that's sort of leading the way. So I myself as, have only heard a little bit of this and mm-hmm. admittedly don't know too much about it. So if I'm speaking ignorantly, uh, I apologize. But in my experiences with people who've said something like this or the things that I've read, um, I just I, I guess I just have to say I'm not too impressed with what's going on. Um, They seem to be giving a sort of intellectual and serious air to, to, uh, I'm wondering if if it's just a sort of social uncomfortableness Mm -hmm. with particularly early 21st century American evangelicalism, in which case I say, um, there's no problem with that. There's no problem with that. If we have grievances with certain church cultures, certain even perversions, misunderstandings, bad expressions of the gospel, by all means, semper reformanda, always reforming, always moving in a direction of clearer biblical truth and presentation of the gospel, we can get it wrong. We can have abusive, wrong-headed church communities. That doesn't mean the gospel's wrong. That means we're wrong. And I think in some cases, that's what people are going through. And so particularly young people, they don't know the difference between the theological theory, which is very, very important, and the church experience. We've become so experiential, and experience is important. I'm not a a stoic anti-experience or something like that. Experience is very important, but that's only part of the story. Uh, we also have to have a theory. We also have to have clear thoughts, and that's what traditionally catechesis did um, or, 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 or learning a church doctrinal statement. Um, it gave us the categories for thinking clearly about these things, and then as we have experiences, interpreting those experiences in light of those and also influencing our reading of those things so it plays this mutual role. Well, now we've become almost entirely experiential. So – a lot of people who are deconstructing, they think that that's what Christianity is. It's all of their experiences, many good ones and many bad ones, and they want to sort those things out. So they, they say, I'm deconstructing my faith. Well, you're not deconstructing the Christian faith. If you want to deconstruct the Christian faith, that is, do what a mechanic would do when he opens up the hood of a car and deconstructs an engine and takes apart its pieces and polishes it up for the task of putting it back together. The person who's deconstructing is usually saying, that's what I want to do. I want to put it back together and I'm going to find some bad things in there, some broken things, I'm going to chuck them. And I might replace them with some good things. I might find that they're useless and superfluous and just take them out anyway and leave them out. And I don't know where I'll go. Okay, a mechanic might say the same thing. I'm going to work on this engine and I'm going to try to fine tune it. And uh, I don't know what I'm going to find. 
Well, the simple fact is the vast majority aren't trained to do that. You know who's trained to do that? That's what my training was getting a PhD in theology. Everybody who gets a PhD in theology, you're training to deconstruct your faith. This isn't a new or radical or sexy thing. It's really boring. <laughs> it takes a lot of time. It's hard. But that's how you responsibly learn to get, deconstruct your faith. So ironically, the people who they think are like the indoctrinators and the ones who are sort of telling us what to think are the ones – I can just tell you from uh, – well, frankly, from experience, I was – put through the ringer, I mean, put through the ringer learning to deconstruct my faith with people who agreed with me, disagreed with me, had a different faith, questioned me, pushed me, prodded me. These are all the people who, with whom I did, you know, the professors under whom I studied for my PhD. And man, they were hard on me. But they forced me to really learn the parts and pieces of theology and learn how to take them apart, look at them, and to analyze them rightly. That's what it takes to deconstruct your faith. And that can be kind of discouraging to people. They're like, Oh, well, shoot, I guess I don't have a PhD in theology. I guess I can't do it. Well, I don't mean to say that either. Uh, but what I mean to say is that just going it your own um, and, and, and imagining, I think it's a bit arrogant to imagine that I'm going to deconstruct my faith. I'm going to analyze it rightly. With what tools? With what understanding? With what historical understanding? Do you even have the historical theory? Do you even understand these historical doctrines? Maybe you're just unpacking your feelings. And if that's the case, by all means, counseling and unpacking your feelings and looking at your soul is very valuable. But let's not pretend as if you are really seriously analyzing the Christian faith. Yeah, definitely. I've definitely seen how various elements of the Enlightenment and possibly, you know, according to the classical definition of postmodernism, incredulity towards metanarratives – is often in, con, in what congruent with what deconstructionist philosophy can come to, where it's deconstructing without reconstructing. And many times the problems that we face today with the deconstruction movement is that people are deconstructing and they're not reconstructing. And maybe the fault was like, as you were saying earlier, there isn't a catechesis in the church. We're not being equipped with how to systematically think out our faith, that our faith actually is not a a conundrum of various barbaric men making various pontifications about theology and philosophy, but rather it has a robust history in terms of great philosophers and theologians and writers who have thought through deeply on these various issues. How would you say the effects of postmodernism has had on how the church is functioning today and the challenges that we face today? Again, another good question. Postmodernism was a real bugaboo, uh, particularly back in the 90s. Um, the church was talking about postmodernism and the dangers of, of postmodernism kind of the way that we hear contemporary churches speaking of what you just mentioned, deconstruction or another really hot-button issue, critical race theory. Is it a friend or a foe of the gospel? These seem to be the hot issues of the day. Uh, a couple dec decades ago, postmodernism was the thing, and, and we would hear pastors saying, we're now in a postmodern era. And, uh, you know, in many churches, we didn't know what we were talking about. I, I have a PhD in philosophy of religion. I still have difficulty understanding exactly what postmodernism is. I've read a few books on it. It depends on who you talk to. It's, it's, it's difficult. In general, I, I, I sort of know what it is. As you mentioned, um, one general definition is it's um, rejection of metanarratives, which is to say it's rejection of a sort of single overarching God's eye perspective on, on all things. Like this is the ultimate answer. 
postmodernism says there is no ultimate answer, or perhaps if there is, we can't get to it. But what we can do is we can give answers, and that's not to say necessarily that all answers are equal. Postmodernist doesn't have to go that far, but at least it breaks down that idea that we can get to this overarching single truth, and it depends on how radical you want to get with it. Some postmodernists or people who call themselves postmodern are pretty benign about it. Some are pretty radical about it. So your question is, to what effect has it had uh, on these things that we're talking about, the expression of the gospel and the and the tasks of apologetics, gosh, it's really hard to say. On one hand, I want to say, well, maybe really profound effects. Maybe it's really affected our trust in the very notion that we can know anything, and it's made us very skeptical, needlessly skeptical. On the other hand, I want to say that um, I, I kind of feel like postmodernism is a paper tiger, right? It's not really all that impressive and it really hasn't had that much of an effect because people go on just sort of being normally rational. Of course, cultures can become, by adopting certain values and sharing certain experiences and um, having certain biases, can encourage kinds of irrationality. But for the most part, you know, being reasonable, being rational being thoughtful, communicating is just required for life. And the better that you can do it, the better you are. And that's kind of part of maturity. Now, not everybody is that. And we're very inconsistently that. And as I said, we have biases. But we, we just haven't ended up in a world where people go, well, nothing's true. You know, in theory, they start acting that way. But in practice, they never do. Right, right. If you just sort of in your mundane life, I had a professor um, who – who um, was – he was the chair of, of, um, of process theology at Claremont Graduate University where I did my PhD and I was his research assistant and he was very much um, kind of in the 90s mold of radical French postmodernism, nothing is true and this sort of thing. And he was that way in theory. But knowing him in person, he was a normal guy, <laughs> very normal, normally reasonable and – as soon as it got theoretical about truth and all of that stuff, suddenly everything changed. And I just got the impression that in theory for his academic career, he was something that he really wasn't in normal mundane life. So even he wasn't really a postmodernist, um, a, a wholesale denier of truth. It's just – I guess our lives just don't really work that way. So maybe we've just been a little bit more inconsistent and a little bit more skeptical. Yeah. There's definitely this uh, discontinuity between people who can say that they're a nihilist, but not many people are functional nihilists. Mm -hmm. And the philosopher that I observed, I think really understood this, this fact, was I think Friedrich Nietzsche, is that according to someone who really believes that God is dead and that matter is all that matters and matter is all that is, well, according to that, there's no really functional reason to live, maybe aside from reproduction. And so that's definitely something that is inconsistent with many people is that there's this cognitive dissonance between what they hold in their minds as their philosophical presuppositions and oftentimes how they walk it out. Absolutely. That's absolutely. And, and Nietzsche is a great example of that, of somebody who <clears throat> I had one professor when I was, when I was doing my master's degree in, in philosophy. He said, unlike many other philosophers, sometimes Nietzsche isn't even considered a philosopher, mm. um, who, who try to do philosophy with a scalpel. 
very carefully dividing one question from another and making distinctions. He did philosophy with a hammer. He would knock out a hole in the wall where he thought a hole was required and then leave it to others to, to patch, uh, patch the damage. He didn't really care about damage. And um, as you were suggesting, one of the reasons for this is that he wanted to take the emerging secular post-Christian European attitude very seriously. If God is dead and he didn't mean, you know, God lived and then died, he was an atheist. He meant God never was, but God was a useful idea for particularly European culture, for social ordering, for our lives in that way. And now we have grown up and we've realized it was all a myth the whole time. Now how do we live? And he said, I want to take that seriously. And if you read his philosophy, I would say it really is the sort of anti-ethic of the psychopath, the sort of Superman philosophy, the ubermensch, the Superman, and and his ethic of not good versus evil, but but uh, but good versus bad, which is to say whatever's useful to him, whatever's needed for him, he'll do, he'll take. He doesn't have any qualms. He doesn't even have a concept of evil. If something's bad, it's just useless to him. Uh, but he'll do and take whatever he wants. Well, that's, again, the, the philosophy of the psychopath. And he took that very seriously. And as he himself was sort of devolving in health uh, with syphilis, uh, started to say more and more crazy things. And I think it was a combination of it, his illness and his philosophy that led him off the deep end to, to just say, you know, basically devolve into incoherent ranting. Uh, but he, you know, he took it very seriously. And, um, you know, some, some existentialist philosophers, particularly French existentialist philosophers, Sartre and, and, uh, and, and Camus and, and others like that, uh, also took this idea of the death of God and of atheism very seriously and tried to be consistent atheists. Well, I don't think 21st century atheists are as serious, frankly. Um, they're they're just not as serious. They're they're just sort of blissfully, um, you know, sort of blissful atheists uh, who say, "Well, there is no God." But I, frankly, um, I think they're very inconsistent on their view of moral truths. I I actually have a sort of intellectual respect for the nihilistic atheists. At least you're making sense. Uh, in terms of athe- uh, in terms of what atheism says, they would look at uh, somebody like uh, Saddam Hussein and say, "Hey, if you can get away with it, it's all good. There's nothing intrinsically wrong there. No judgments. Um, I don't want to be on the other end, but uh, but there's nothing intrinsically wrong." Well, that's that's true as far as atheism goes. Uh, well, then what are we going to do with that? If we're going to say that's inhumane and I can't imagine that, I can't live that, then maybe we ought not be atheists. But at least we make it clear. Yeah, that really, I think, ties in overall to how our faith as a whole is the best explanation for reality. It is the most reasonable explanation for all the different facets we see in terms of morals, the existence of the universe, the fact that laws of physics are consistent as well. Yeah, and it really just, I think, ties back to what Augustine and C.S. Lewis have been saying is that, you know, we believe in God because by him, all things make sense and all reality comes into congruence. So as we wrap that this episode. Dr. Merchant, do you have one book that you think everyone should read, obviously, aside from the Bible? But I know this is a very hard question to ask any professor, but what is one book that you think everyone should read? Oh, my goodness. That is really such a difficult question. Um, Picking some some modern person might be a little bit too fanboy, right? I could could pick uh, some really important um, philosophers and theologians in my own life, people like 
William Lane Craig and J.P. Moreland had a big influence uh, on me on my notion of philosophical development. Okay, I'm going to throw a curveball here. I'm going to say a really important book to read is On the Trinity by Augustine. So it's an ancient book, and it's one that many theologians don't even read so much of. If you know Augustine, this 5th century theologian, probably one of the greatest thinkers in the history of the church um, outside of of the apostles, one of the most influential people in the development of, Christ, uh, of Christian thought. His book On the Trinity I think is so vital. If you're interested in psychology or counseling, um, psychology actually cites On the Trinity as one of the first books of psychology because in order to explain the Trinity, he explains what we humans are psychologically being made in the image of God. If anything looks anything like the divine being, it should be something like the human being. Now, that might be a little bit too anthropomorphic or even blasphemous for some people, but uh, there is some sense to it. We are the only ones that apparently bear this image of God, and so he asks, what is the human person like? So it's so fascinating in that sense if psychology actually, you know, doesn't accept his view. It's a very, uh, you know, patristic medieval view. It's not a modern view of human personhood, but it sort of starts there, and then he gets into this very deep question. He probes and explores all of the biblical revelation and does some really profound thinking on the nature of God, some beautiful things he says and some philosophically difficult things he says. I think it's a book worth reading and I think it's a shame that it's so little read. Mm, yeah, definitely. I really love how Augustine's book on the Trinity really helps to flesh out what it means to be human beings and what it means to live out the reality of the Trinity in our lives. Well, Dr. Merchant, thank you so much for coming on the show. We have loved having you, and the show will be up on live um, sometime in the future. And thank you. We'd love to hear from you again. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Moody Profcast. The Moody Profcast is a production hosted, produced, and edited by Jonas Swenson in partnership with the professors of the Moody Bible Institute. Graphics are by Aaron Goodfellow. The music featured is a song, Autumn 2011 by Locksbeats. We'd also like to thank Moody Radio and the Moody Communications Department for letting us use their facilities for this production. Tune in again to the Moody Profcast to learn more about how theology intersects with our culture.